The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. Hello, everyone. Today, we bring you a conversation with Jessica Rouge from the Department of Chemistry. Her lab uses nucleic acid nanoparticles to deliver therapeutics for disease treatment. She's a very inspirational early career scientist who works at the intersection between chemistry, biology, and material sciences. We hope you enjoy. I want to start by talking about the therapeutic problem that exists that your lab is trying to target, as well as the solutions that you're working on to target these issues. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here today. Our lab has definitely been focused on trying to develop new nucleic acid delivery platforms, which can assist in their entrance into cells, and in particular for treating diseases that suffer from genetic miscues that can be fixed using things like RNA interference, which is a mechanism that utilizes things like siRNA, short interfering RNA, and small pieces of DNA to reprogram how a cell decides which proteins to make and when. Okay, yeah, it's perfect. So let's, let's dissect that a little. Can you give us an example of a disease that this type of approach might help alleviate? And then, you know, what specifically you're targeting, right? So mRNA translation to protein and how siRNAs can influence that. Absolutely, yeah. So a lot of these different what we call therapeutic oligonucleotides, the RNAs and the DNAs that affect mRNA, as you mentioned, what they do is they basically hybridize to an mRNA sequence and either recruit a protein complex that can degrade the mRNA, or they themselves can cleave an mRNA. And by cleaving and breaking down mRNA, you prevent the translation of the protein that's encoded by that mRNA. Now, this is happening in the cell, or um, you can introduce uh, RNA and DNA from the outside that can do that. But the ability to do that is incredibly difficult. It turns out that only viruses really have developed a mechanism for bringing RNA and DNA molecules from outside a cell into a cell. And so what we try to do is figure out what kinds of synthetic mechanisms can we use to get something that's really charged, like a DNA molecule, to go through the uh, very greasy, hydrophobic outer layer of a cell. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our chemistry focuses on outfitting these DNA and RNA molecules so that they can get inside. And once inside, as you mentioned, there's a number of different steps that are pretty complex that have to occur just right mm -hmm. in order to knock out or silence a gene. But um, a lot of that is understood enough for the mechanisms we're using. So are you using the viruses as an example to follow in developing these methods of crossing the cell membrane, or uh, are you looking at other approaches? Like Absolutely. So viruses are really fascinating. They're nanoscale in size, and they have everything they need to do when they get into a cell pre-programmed into the material that they're made out of. So they contain a lot of nucleic acid, like RNA or DNA, that's inside of a protein. Capsid is what you would call that. And so essentially, when it gets near a cell or inside a cell, there are different proteins that can break down that virus outer shell, and then it would release the nucleic acid into the cell to force it to make proteins that it needs. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is make nanocapsules that are built of very similar materials, built out of uh, protein-like materials, peptide-like materials, and then also have nucleic acids like DNA and RNA displayed on their surface so that if they get into a cell, they will basically incorporate into a cell's inner workings just like a virus would. So the surface placement doesn't detract from the ability of this particle to move across the membrane? So. The idea is to bring these charged particles across a hydrophobic layer. Right. But if you put it on the surface, 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I actually did my postdoc in a group that really explored this concept. It was pretty exciting when they discovered that putting DNA, even on something like a gold nanoparticle, doesn't seem like it should go through the outside of a cell to the inside because it's a ball of negative Mm -hmm. charge. But it turns out that there are things called scavenger receptors and other cell receptors that may take in endocytose, these particles, And they don't really know what they are Mm -hmm. because they're unusual. They have the nucleic acids on the outside, not on the inside. And they kind of put them in a holding pattern in the endosome to decide what to do with it. And the reality is that they don't know what to do with it. And a lot of times the nucleic acid gets degraded before it has a chance to actually get to the cytosol and engage the mRNA. So a major challenge that our group and many groups are working on is this concept called endosomal escape, Mm -hmm. where we're trying to outfit these delivery systems to make it past the point of endocytosis. So cells take them in, but to get out into the cytosol, we have to use specialized chemistries to be able to get where we need to go to make them the most effective delivery systems. It's so fascinating. How do you think on the molecular level like this, right? How do Mm -hmm. you get your mind to try to understand the key interactions and the players that are happening at something that we can barely even visualize? Sure, yeah. These are great questions. Uh, So... One of the big things we do is we start with everything from the perspective of the nucleic acid. And I think that sets our group apart from a lot of other groups where they have a material platform they use to bring things into cells and they add things to it, proteins or peptides, plasmids. Mm -hmm. For us, we're specifically tailoring it around a short piece of DNA or a short piece of RNA that we want to get into the cell. And so we have to think about the fact that, yeah, you get endocytose, but now how do you get out of the endosome? That's another cell membrane that's greasy and negatively charged so you'd be repelled from it. So we do things like introducing cationic groups, things that are positively charged or greasy um, alkylated tails that can enable it to penetrate through lipid Mm -hmm. bilayers and we're trying to tune that so we improve uh, the permeability but also balance the stability so they don't get chewed up by things like nucleases which destroy RNA and DNA. Sure. And so your current approach is siRNAs or other other molecules that can also interfere with mRNA translation? Yeah, we mostly focus right now on a class of catalytic oligonucleotides called DNAzymes. So I've done a lot of work with ribozymes and DNAzymes in the past. Uh, they act similarly to siRNA, but instead of an antisense interaction mm-hmm. where you know the duplex of an siRNA may separate and then bind to mRNA, oligonucleotides are very fascinating. They bind directly to the mRNA and they facilitate the cleavage of the mRNA themselves. They don't recruit a protein. The DNA enzymes are completely synthetic and isolated in labs and then utilized for these purposes. Does that improve the accuracy? Or is it just more efficient? Yeah, what is the benefit of that? Yeah, so DNA enzymes and ribozymes have these flanking regions that do have a bit more stability and specificity when they bind mRNA. And DNA is more stable than RNA in many ways, but the advantage is the specificity. So you can have siRNA that have off-target effects. Mm -hmm. And if you think about an siRNA is only 20 bases long, typically. mRNAs are thousands of bases long. So the chances that seed region it needs to hybridize to can come up many times in different transcripts. So you may knock out different genes you don't want. And so in many ways, a DNA enzyme has a longer hybridization region, so it actually can be more accurate. The reason people don't use it more is because they require their folded structure to cleave the mRNA, something siRNA doesn't require. So they both have pros and cons. You said they're synthetically made, mm-hmm. right? So that means it's not a guaranteed workable unit. If you make this DNA zyme, are you able to predict its structure that would inform you if it'll work? Or is it kind of a, a guess and check where you're like, this is the sequence that we want to make. Let's see if it works efficiently to knock down this transcript. 
Yeah, so I'll back up just one second. So ribozymes, which are the RNA counterpart to DNA zymes, they are found in nature. They're found in bacteria and other, they can be embedded in um, uh, different parts of sequences that are, uh, are in biology, whereas DNA zymes are selected uh, in a laboratory. So the very essence of having a DNA sequence came from trying to find a DNA in a very large library of sequences that actually does exactly what you want. So you know the fold and the structure will induce gotcha. the cleavage of the mRNA. Yeah. So that's a good question. The other side of it, though, is I purposely choose DNA zymes because the bar is a little higher for endosomal escape, mm. right? So if it makes it to the cytosol, that's only step one. Step two is it needs to be folded right. Step three, it needs to bind the mRNA properly. So all those things have to go right before you see gene silencing, whereas siRNA, it needs to get in, stay stable, but basically it just hybridizes. So it I tells see. us a lot about our delivery platform by using a DNA zyme over an siRNA. Gotcha. So let's say instead of having excess gene expression, you have mutant gene expression, right? So you have a mutation in a gene and it leads to a toxic protein. And you want to silence the cells from being able to produce mRNA from that gene with a mutation and therefore translate that mRNA into a mutant protein. Can you co-deliver these DNA zymes to knock down the mRNA, endogenous mRNA, and then also add in mRNA to produce normal protein? It sounds like you're talking about a CRISPR-like system. <laughs> well, A little bit, but yeah, with your yeah. system, right? It's not at the genomic level. It's still at the RNA sure. level, right? Yeah, no. So there may be examples out there that are like that. We're not going after that in particular. We've mostly focused in part due to we still feel like there's so much to learn about how we're using this more simple method. But what you're suggesting would be possible if you could write cleave and then have some sort of DNA repair mechanism that could permanently edit perhaps the gene. Or are you talking about well, even just co-delivery of, so you just delete, so you, you use a DNA zyme for the, the, the mutant mRNA, and then you use, you supply mm -hmm. as well normal mRNA. I see, But I guess I see. the problem would be that the DNA zyme would probably recognize the right. normal, because if you have a single base change, yeah. then yeah. it's... It'd be, it'd be challenging. I, I don't know of examples that exist in that light, but it's almost like you're suggesting a splicing. Um, kind of. Or co-delivery yeah, yeah, to co make up for what you right. want. Right. If you're going to remove this yeah. protein product, maybe it does serve some functional right. purpose, and so you don't want to lose the purpose sure. overall, so you need to... But you bring up a really good point. I like in our lab to focus on transient knockdown. So things like RNA interference or DNA zyme-induced mRNA interference, these things are temporary, and there's some persistence associated with how long they affect, maybe two days, three days. Mm -hmm. But then after they degrade, you know, you go back to the normal levels because, like you said, typically you need the protein. Some Unless it. it was a misfolded or aberrant protein, you typically don't want to knock it out completely. Right. From a therapeutic perspective, is there a significant difference or benefit in using like the DNA zyme method as opposed to, for instance, a gene editing technology to attack like a similar problem, like along the same vein? Like, Yeah, I think it really just depends on the disease. Um, you've probably maybe seen a lot in the news about gene therapy. It's mm -hmm. very permanent in cases where their person was born with a genetic modification, a single base pair mutation. You would want to, if possible, delete that and insert the right piece of gene. But uh, definitely, I think the RNA interference is great for situations where your cells may be overexpressing a particular uh, protein due to having a particular disease state. But then after that's over, you don't want to be knocking down that gene anymore. So again, there are definitely times to use an interference pathway than a permanent gene editing solution. So what are some of the diseases that this type of therapy could help solve? 
Yeah, so for instance, we work right now with Steve Stepanek's group who works in the pathobiology department where we're looking at asthma and inflammation. Mm -hmm. So inflammation is something where you have some response that's somewhat temporary, but it's acute and you may want to bring that negative response down. And so trying to knock out transcription factors that may induce the production of cytokines or Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interleukins and things that are associated with inflammation would be great. And it's kind of a more long-term treatment than the short-term maybe rescue inhaler that someone who has asthma may be utilizing, or maybe they could be used together to treat immediate Mm -hmm. issues and then suppress particular proteins expression so that you're not as inclined to have a bad reaction. So we look at things like that with our system, and we're actually working in a mouse model to study this right now, which is exciting. Yeah. Has there been in vivo success with this? Yeah. um, So we're excited. We've already done one five-week treatment with our nanomaterials that have our nucleic acids on the outside with a house dust mite mouse model which is basically you take a native mouse and then you give it a bolus of crushed up house dust mites. <laughs> and over a period of time, they eventually start to express indicators of inflammation. Uh, they have eosinophils that start to flood their lungs and changes in their macrophage levels. And so we can then give, um, uh, at the same time, have a, a set of mice that are given the house dust mite mixture and our nanoparticles and see that they can return to levels that look similar to the PBS saline uh, so your control mice. So, levels. Your yeah, so levels. it's been very exciting, and we're now doing a larger scale version of that right now. Wow. Yeah, so it's been really fun. Yeah, so, I mean, what your lab has done in the past few years, you're relatively young faculty. Mm-hmm. You just, congratulations, were awarded the NSF Early Experience Grant. Is or that what it's grant? Yeah, early yeah. Career Grant. Yep. Uh, and, you know, you're putting out papers and you have many graduate students. And it's inspirational to us graduate students to see the success once, you know, you land at a faculty position. So, now I wanted to segue a little bit to talk about your trajectory here at UConn and, you know, how you've been so successful in the beginning to be awarded this NSF grant, what this grant means for your lab and what it allows you to do, and the advice you have or the experience you can now share starting a lab from the beginning and being as successful as you are. Well, thank you for that introduction. <laughs> it has been uh, quite a, a whirlwind experience here at UConn. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, we've had the lab for four years now, but in that those four years, I had a pretty specific set of goals in the front end. I wanted to, you know, make connections to the health center mm-hmm. and to bio labs that I thought could, if we were successful with our materials, give them those materials and know what our targets are and really tailor it for a specific disease or delivery platform. And uh, before I got to UConn, even as a postdoc back at Northwestern, I was emailing students, trying to get my name out there, let them know what we do and what we're excited about. And I was fortunate enough to have four graduate students join my first year. Wow. And I think that really helped with getting things going. We had a postdoc who joined as well. And so very quickly, we went from the synthesis of the nanomaterials to moving into biological assays and then seeing how far we could go. We set up cell culture in our lab space to assess the in vitro activity in cell culture. And once we started having collaborators who can help us move in vivo and we started to see the gene knockdown with our formulation, that's when we knew we had something. Mm -hmm. And uh, honestly, the last year or so has been looking inward on our system and saying, how does it work? Which is something exciting too. It's not just that it works, it's the mechanism by which it works. So we're doing a lot of fundamental studies as well. And the NSF has been kind enough to support us with funding that's going to look at something that's a slight departure from therapeutics. It's actually more to understand what kinds of chemistries or triggers could we build into our nanocapsules? Could we use light to activate these? Mm. Could we use magnetism as another one we're looking at, temperature? And these kinds of stimuli are pretty exciting because you could imagine if you gave these nanoparticles to a mouse, let's say, and they're circulating everywhere, there's a large problem with targeting. 
Sure. Very few nanoparticles can actually go to a specific organ other than the liver because that's where everything gets cleared through the body. And so one idea might be if you could remotely activate gene activation. What if you could come in and use light? You don't have to necessarily be on the inside, but the right. particles are everywhere. So it's one angle on how could you address this idea of systemic delivery, but local activation of the nanocapsules. And so there's a couple of different avenues we're looking at for that, but it could also be used for imaging if we had dyes and fluorophores. So there's it's a very fundamental study, the NSF-supported work, but it could have a lot of important applications if it's successful. Right, because you could use this both just as a technique in the lab using these nanoparticles right. as well as the therapeutics you do. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting that you find this discovery and maybe not know 100% how it works, but then you are spending the valuable time to learn because you think this right, is right, a meaningful Because right. you get excited that it works the yeah. way you wrote on paper, and then you get even more excited when you find it, hey, it actually is working by going through a cell membrane the way I thought it would. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe it's not doing it that way, but it's still working, and let's figure out why, that yeah, kind of yeah. a thing. So how would the magnetism work? You would just supply a magnet at the... So a lot of people use alternating magnetic fields to generate localized heat with nanomaterials. So inorganic nanoparticles, if you apply an alternating magnetic field, if they're metal oxide, some of them are able to kind of do an electron orientation switching that locally could heat up water around them. And so people have been working in this area for a while, but if you heat up crosslinkers and materials that are thermoresponsive, you can imagine that you can create a cascade of responses that is highly controlled by a local magnetic field that's been applied. Wow. Yeah, so some really fun things we're excited to explore. It's also really cool to see the interaction of multiple fields of science, mm -hmm. right? So material science meets chemistry meets biology, mm -hmm. right? And I think, I don't know if you've noticed, but I feel like I've started to notice as well just in what you know our lab does, it's not really just biology anymore. It's biology, it's bioinformatics, it's statistics. It's mm -hmm. this collaboration of many different fields of expertise that are now That's needed true. to spearhead a single project. Yeah, Absolutely. the bigger question is as you begin to tackle them, it just requires more. Right. Yeah. You need to it's pull very highly more interdisciplinary, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I feel like by being in these kinds of like nanobio or nanomaterials kind of things, it's exciting because so many people do have to come together, but it's also important when you work, let's say, in a chemistry department to know what your focus is, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I always try to tell the students that we're looking at biological systems with a chemical lens or a way in which how can we contribute or help from the molecular level, like right. you said, and build things from the bottom up to have a certain property that would be useful in a biological system. Because you can become overwhelmed as a young student to say, like, oh my gosh, what path do I take to work in that, what mm -hmm. we just described? It's so many different things. But really there is, you know, the fundamentals of chemistry we have to make materials, to analyze them, know you have what you think you have, and then collaborations. Obviously, you can't do it all by yourself. Right. So we have collaborators, as I mentioned, the Health Center and Pathobiology. We're looking forward to starting the collaboration with the Magnetism with Dr. Manka Jane, who's a physicist here at UConn. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely going to bring in all the best from different angles right. so that we can achieve these kind of more complex projects. But it makes sense. I mean, a group-based approach, you could produce so much better work and data with you know experts of many different fields than sure. one person trying to do it all themselves. But you also mentioned the idea of students trying to figure out their path, mm -hmm. right? And like, right. how do you break into this field? It seems so large and complex and many right. different paths. I know 
when we previously spoke, you had mentioned something about a high school early experience program with Glastonbury. Oh, yeah, correct? absolutely. Are yeah. you still doing yes, that? Yes, we're still doing that. We're about to launch, um, this is, the, I think, our third year interacting with Glastonbury's Advanced Mentorship Research Program, or ARM, I think is what it's called. And it's a fantastic program where Glastonbury has the students learn about what research is, but then actually get real-world experience in labs. And the students that we've had have been fantastic. And, you know, they're just doing a small part of a larger mm-hmm. project, but the experience that they get that you know, I encourage high school students to do this because I did that myself back in New York when I was in high school. I had the experience at Stony Brook University. And, you know, I don't know that I fully understood everything I was sure. doing at the time, yeah. but I was able to at least, you know, be around advanced instrumentation and see what the life of a graduate student or an undergraduate researcher looked like. Ever since then has been something that I think has inspired me all along. So we try to keep that up in our own group as well. Do you take them just for the summer or is it for the whole year? It's actually for the school year. So they're given time during the day to leave Glastonbury High School and come here. It's been around for a few years and the teacher who runs it, Ms. Pinavalli, is really dedicated a lot of time into it. So it's very organized. There are also schools where they don't have a set up program where I organized a few different programs with the help of the early college experience office Mm -hmm. here at UConn. And what they've done is help me to coordinate with high school teachers to bring kids to UConn's chemistry building. And we'll do a day where junior faculty will tell them about what they do. And they get to come into the teaching labs and we let them try some stuff. And so they get the experience. And it's good for our grad students, too. They get to work with younger students if that's something they're interested in. So it's good for everybody. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think that it's also something that's lacking, that your lab is probably one of the few that does it, that Glastonbury High School is probably one of the few schools who has a program like ARM. But I think it's highly valuable. Our PI just started a program in the P&B department called LEAP, mm-hmm. which is leveraging early access to like research careers, something like that. And the idea is, yeah, for freshmen coming into the university to get a quick exposure mm-hmm. so that it doesn't happen when they're juniors and then figure out that, yeah. you know, hey, maybe I would like to learn what research is about. And then in that short span of time, try to make a quick decision about yeah, a big yeah, idea. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think it would be awesome to be able to, you know, spread this type of mentorship. And outreach. Just somehow, right? And, right? and, you know, get more labs at UConn. Because I'm sure more people would be excited to help Yeah, well, so students. it's interesting you say that. So there are a, quite a few people who are taking in these ARM students from Glastonbury, mm-hmm. but they've mostly been on the bio, like uh, at the health center, my understanding. I see. And it's growing. It's getting more and more into chemistry. But I would agree with you that not a lot of people know about these kinds of outreach programs and the NSF coming back to that a big part of the proposal that we put together was to try to work with high school teachers in the state of Connecticut to know that these opportunities exist that there are labs that are willing to bring in high school students sometimes whatever you're doing it's it's too dangerous or it doesn't make sense but a lot of it is fairly accessible even just a shadow and that could be huge for young students to see that so we're going to try to develop a network of interactions and there are other people doing this on campus so to make it a little more transparent transparent for both parents, kids, and labs that are interested in doing it so that you can match them up properly. So how is this going to work? So it's in its very early stages. Yeah, uh, an official um, program? (laughs) Yeah, so we do have a website that we're launching, and I'm pretty sure it's catalyzing curiosity. Um, And uh, Mm -hmm. essentially the idea is that you're going to we want to populate this with all the different programs that are done by high school teachers that are connected to the early college experience here at UConn, just to make it a more fluid experience. But there are many other NSF-funded programs at different schools that have already set up these kinds of websites to help parents, students, and teachers yeah. connect with each other. It's a great idea, I think. Yeah, it should be fun. And you enjoyed your experience when you did it? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of this is just, you know, th there's very little time in the day to do these things. But when we do get to do them, it's very rewarding always because of how you get to give back from clearly sure. it influenced me. And now I get to do it for these kids. So what's next for your lab? What's coming around the bend? <laughs> well, so we're moving towards a more on the mechanism side of, of figuring out how these materials work. We actually also work with a pharmaceutical company who's interested in our formulation. So that's been really exciting to see what the challenges are at the next stage. Mm -hmm. If you were to really scale these materials up, what does that look like? And we also have you know these collaborations that are moving more translationally. We have the one I mentioned with the mice. We also have one that was started at the Yukon Health Center where it's also in my but doing injections into the eye in a project that has to do with axon regeneration. So these are areas that I never thought myself I'd work in. <laughs> yeah. wow. But when I find out there are people who are interested in knocking out genes that would enable, you know, someone to recover from an optical nerve injury, you know, that's fantastic. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like there's more things we can apply to than we have people to do. And so we try to limit it to like one or two main focus areas that we can learn basic design principles from. And then maybe we can apply that to other systems from there. And you're taking new graduate students now? I do hope to take uh, a or new no. graduate student. If anybody out there is listening. Is <laughs> yeah. um, basically, we've had new funding come in and also the idea that soon my first batch of graduate students will be graduating, which is exciting. And so when that happens, it'd be great to have new members of the team to carry all these great ideas forward. Yeah, and spearhead some of these new projects and ideas mm -hmm. and collaborations. Right, right. So where can we find you? You're on Twitter now. <laughs> I am on Twitter. If you want to plug your Twitter, it's... Um, I don't know the exact handle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can that. find that after, yeah. yeah. I think it's Rouge Lab. At Rouge like Lab? That. Yeah, I and think it's at Rouge Lab. Does your lab have a website? We do. That's rougechem.org. Uh, <laughs> and okay. we welcome visitors to that. We uh, keep it pretty up to date. Yeah, yeah. So. I think it's great that you've joined the science Twitter community and to be able to share your work with many other people that also could just be interested as well, that would yeah, you know, not really run across the And who knows what collaborations can come yes. from that as well. Yes, honestly, sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank, thank you. you. This was fun to yeah. discuss this. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Check out all of our material on iTunes or Spotify. You can check out our social media at InVivoPod for both Twitter and Instagram. And email us with any comments or suggestions at invivo.podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Kyle Drake. You can find me on social media at underscore Kyle Drake. The people who make this possible are co-host Victor Kaye. You can find him as well at underscore Victor Kaye. Our editor is the awesome Kevin Ryan. He can be found at The Golden Whammy Bar. And our illustrator is Sarah Demers at underscore, 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 try Sarah top, underscore, underscore. We'd like to thank our funding from the Office of the Vice President for Research and the Office of the Provost. Thank you very much.